Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, June 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A new method of carbon capture that would turn carbon dioxide from the ocean into rocks. Mosquitoes beefed up with virus-fighting bacteria have proven even more effective at preventing dengue fever than expected. And the often forgotten history of a turn-of-the-century scientist way ahead of his time and his groundbreaking gender and sexuality clinic that was destroyed by the Nazis. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. About a quarter of every ton of carbon dioxide released into the air ends up absorbed by the ocean. The excess carbon dioxide is acidifying the water and destroying some marine life. And we know that we need to not only reduce carbon emissions, but also figure out efficient methods of carbon capture, basically pulling the carbon dioxide out of the environment. But according to Smithsonian Magazine, the most popular methods of pulling the CO2 out of the air have been super expensive and not quite quite worked at a scale required to make a difference. But there's another way. Capturing carbon from the ocean. Carbon is much more highly concentrated in the ocean, making it easier to capture, and large bodies of water can hold more than 150 times the amount of CO2 as air. And now, Gaurav Sant, a civil and environmental engineering professor at UCLA, and his team have developed a prototype method for capturing carbon from oceans and turning it into rocks. Quoting Smithsonian, Seawater contains a lot of calcium and magnesium. When the calcium or magnesium ions combine with carbon dioxide, they form calcite or magnesite. The chemical reaction is similar to how many marine organisms build their shells, but by introducing a third ingredient, electricity, Sant and his team can make that reaction happen quickly, efficiently, and perhaps eventually on a large scale. Putting this all together, the scientists have proposed a new technology that will run seawater through an electrically charged mesh using electrolysis to trigger the chemical reactions needed to form carbonate rocks. The process is a bit like a water treatment plant, but instead of taking in water and sifting out impurities, the proposed plant would use electricity to form carbon, calcium, and magnesium to react and become solids. The purified water would then be returned to the ocean, end quote. And the water that goes back is a bit more alkaline, which is beneficial towards mitigating the effects of acidification in the immediate vicinity, says Alan Hatton, a chemical engineer at MIT. The solidifying process also creates hydrogen gas as a byproduct, which Sant says would offset the costs of the plant. Quote, even if a proposed ocean carbon capture plant is powered by natural gas instead of renewable energy, the whole process could still be carbon negative because of this hydrogen gas byproduct, end quote. Other groups are working on similar processes with promising results. The main downside so far is the sheer amount of solids this form of ocean capture would create. 10 gigatons of carbon from the ocean would yield 20 gigatons of carbonates. But Sant says it can be used for construction. He said, quote, Because my carbon dioxide sequestration method effectively produces carbon-neutral limestone, now you've got the ability to produce carbon-neutral cement and use the limestone solids for construction. End quote. There are other concerns, however. Some solids would ultimately still end up in the ocean and disturb marine life, and even just the process in and of itself could disturb flow patterns in the water. And if we get to the point Sant and others desire of hundreds or thousands of ocean carbon capture plants around the world, there could absolutely be unintended consequences we can't even quite envision yet. 
But for now, Sant says he mostly hopes the experiment will get people thinking more creatively about carbon capture. Which economist Wojciech Kopchuk agrees with. He tweeted in response to the project, quote, Look, we can turn carbon dioxide into islands. How many other ideas like this are out there that we don't know about because we haven't put the price on and created a market for dealing with carbon emissions? End quote. An excellent question indeed. Mosquitoes intentionally infected with a virus-fighting bacteria have reduced cases of dengue fever by 77% in the Indonesian town where they were released as part of a controlled, randomized trial. Quoting the BBC, Few people had heard of dengue 50 years ago, but it has been a relentless, slow-burning pandemic, and cases have increased dramatically. In 1970, only nine countries had faced severe dengue outbreaks, and now there are up to 400 million infections a year. Dengue is commonly known as breakbone fever because it causes severe pain in muscles and bones and explosive outbreaks can overwhelm hospitals, end quote. But now the World Mosquito Program, the nonprofit that conducted the study, thinks it could have found the solution and they expect the WHO to recommend their method as an official approach for broader use. The particular bacterium at play is one whose effects in blocking dengue have been known, but for which there had not been a gold standard trial done before now. Quoting Science Mag, The bacterium Wolbachia pipientis naturally inhabits many insects, though not Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, the main transmitter of dengue virus. In Aedes aegypti cells, the bacterium can block viruses, including dengue, from replicating, making the insects less likely to spread disease when they bite humans. That has made the microbe a promising strategy for fighting dengue. For the trial, the researchers divided a 26-square-kilometer area in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, an urban area home to about 300,000 people, into 24 clusters. In 12 of those clusters, the team set out containers of Wolbachia-carrying mosquito eggs every two weeks for 18 to 28 weeks. The microbe eventually spread through the local mosquito population. Ten months after releases started, the prevalence of Wolbachia among mosquitoes in the treated clusters had climbed to 80% or higher, end quote. And after Recruiting study participants, researchers were able to determine not just the 77% drop in dengue infections, but an 86% reduction in hospitalization. Dr. Katie Anders, who worked on the study, told the BBC, quote, It's very exciting. It's better than we could have hoped for, to be honest. This result is groundbreaking. We think it can have an even greater impact when it's deployed at scale in large cities around the world where dengue is a huge public health problem, end quote. Since it's Pride Month this month, I thought that I would share a highlight from LGBTQ plus history that I find among the most fascinating and infuriating. So decades before Alfred Kinsey would found his Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University and over half a century before the Stonewall Uprising, there was a first-of-its-kind institute established in Germany that not only studied but also treated people who were gay, transgender, or experiencing anything that at the time might have been thought of as some sort of sexual deviancy. It's wild to think about such a place existing in the early years of the 20th century, but that was actually a crucial period of gay and trans liberation, and one which the history books often leave out. 
In her biography of Michael Dillon, the first trans man on record to undergo gender confirmation surgery, Pagan Kennedy describes this period of time as, quote, a brief flowering of sexual tolerance between the wars. Berlin, in particular, became, as Kennedy says, the capital of cross-dressing, and one man, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, was on the cutting edge. After co-founding the Scientific Humanitarian Committee in 1897, often regarded as the first gay liberation organization, Hirschfeld began publishing studies of people we would today call transgender, though in 1910, Hirschfeld invented the word transvestite to describe anyone who didn't conform to the gender they were assigned at birth in one way or another. And in 1923, he became the first author to publish the word transsexual in a medical paper. In 1919, he established the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, the world's first center devoted to the large-scale study of human sexuality and gender. Hirschfeld, building on the work of German and Austrian scientists in the 19th century like Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, Karl Maria Kurt Benny, and Richard von Kraft Ebbing, considered homosexuality and gender nonconformity or transgenderism to be physical and inborn conditions, not sinful, criminal, or disturbed. Hirschfeld took it several steps further. He believed, quoting Susan Stryker's Transgender History, that every human being represented a unique combination of sex characteristics, secondary sex-linked traits, erotic preferences, psychological inclinations, and culturally acquired habits and practices. According to his calculations, there were more than 43 million different combinations of characteristics, and therefore more than 43 million kinds or genders of humans, end quote. In Hirschfeld's words, quote, love is as varied as people are, end quote. And crucial among this was Hirschfeld's finding that gender and sexuality were not necessarily linked, debunking misconceptions about all gay people being trans or all trans people being gay. In addition to studying and treating people and hosting lectures and parties and amassing one of the largest collections of gender and sexuality-related artifacts from cultures around the world, Hirschfeld also worked with the Berlin Police Department to end harassment and targeting of transgender people, worked tirelessly to reverse paragraph 175, which criminalized homosexual acts in Germany, created a legal department in the institute to represent men accused of sex crimes, advocated to other governments around the world to decriminalize homosexuality, educated other doctors on gay and trans patients' needs, and actually employed transgender people at the institute. Quoting again from Stryker, Hirschfeld was the linchpin and his institute the hub of the international network of transgender people and progressive medical experts who set the stage for the post-World War II transgender movement, end quote. And in addition to the many doctors, scientists, and transgender pioneers in that circle, there were also authors and artists we still recognize today, like Christopher Isherwood, who lived for a time in an apartment adjacent to the institute that was rented by one of Hirschfeld's sisters and who spent most of his days during that period hobnobbing with guests and scientists at the Institute. Given Isherwood's Kerouacian tendencies to pull fairly obviously from his real life for his novels, you can easily see hints of his time in Hirschfeld's extended circle in his book Goodbye to Berlin, which became the musical Cabaret. Hirschfeld, an outspoken gay Jewish socialist, did not hide his opposition to the Nazi party, nor they him. Despite being beaten up by Nazi sympathizers multiple times, once having his skull fractured and being left for dead, he still treated the many Nazi party members who came through his door. Quoting Kennedy, not 10% of the Nazis were sexually normal, according to Ludwig Levy Lenz, a surgeon at the Institute. 
Party members wanted relief from sexual obsession, impotence, and urge to cross-dress. The medical histories of these Nazis accumulated in the back rooms of the Institute. By the early 1930s, Hirschfeld held the secrets of a number of Hitler's followers. We knew too much, Lenz wrote, end quote. Adolf Hitler himself called Hirschfeld, quote, the most dangerous Jew in Germany. With a target on his back, Hirschfeld planned a semi-spontaneous world lecture tour from 1930 to 1933 to escape Berlin. In May of 1933, while in exile, Hirschfeld watched a newsreel of his institute being destroyed and its contents, over 20,000 books and journals on human sexuality and gender, and countless artifacts and unpublished texts from around the world, burned to ashes by the Nazis. One of the most famous photos circulated of Nazis burning books in the street, though rarely properly credited, is of the Institute's collection being set on fire. If you look closely, you can even see a bronze bust of Hirschfeld himself in the bonfire, his life's work in flames around it. Hirschfeld never went back to Germany. He ended his tour and settled in Nice, France, where he died of a heart attack two years later. It would be an oversimplification to say that the Nazis burned the Institute because Hirschfeld had documentation of some of their members' sexual secrets. Those desires had to be kept a secret, and the members feared being found out so badly because of the oppressive and violent climate the Nazi party was emboldening. We also can't ignore the fact that Dr. Hirschfeld was additionally Jewish and represented the exact type of, quote, Jewish intellectualism that the Nazis were so vehemently and terrifyingly opposed to. It would also be an oversimplification to say that LGBTQ+, and specifically trans rights, were set back just because the Nazis burned down Hirschfeld's Institute. The Nazis were not the only people out there who tried to erase LGBTQ people from existence and from the history books, nor will they be the last. But it was a setback, particularly in terms of the global impact Hirschfeld's research was beginning to have. While various medical interventions like the use of cross-sex hormones and gender-confirming surgeries had been in use in Europe since the 1910s and 20s, thanks in large part to Dr. Hirschfeld and his peers, it would take until 1966, half a century, until that practice had even a glimmer of consideration in the United States. In contrast to the evidence from decades of research by Hirschfeld and others that showed, quoting Stryker, that a person's gender identity could not be changed and that the doctor's responsibility was thus to help transgender people live fuller and happier lives in the gender they identified as their own, end quote. In the United States, the idea of administering that type of care was still seen as, quote, colluding with a deranged person's fantasy, end quote. But in 1966, Harry Benjamin, an American-based German doctor and endocrinologist who had visited Hirschfeld's Institute in the 20s, published the book The Transsexual Phenomenon, advocating for those same principles held by doctors in Europe. The book was the beginning of a sea change in America, and within months, the first program devoted to gender confirmation surgeries and research in the U.S. was established at Johns Hopkins University Medical School. It changed the game in so many ways. But I can't help but think about how much sooner that could have happened or how different it could have been if Hirschfeld's institute, the physical records of his research and the community and intellectual hub he'd created, had been able to continue. Because that's part of it. Hirschfeld's Institute wasn't just about the research, though that was of course crucial. It was a place of refuge, a place for healing, and a place for community. For those who were lucky enough to discover its existence and walk through those doors, it was a place that helped them realize they weren't broken and they weren't alone. 
Christopher Isherwood wrote about his complicated feelings on his first tour of the Institute in his 1976 memoir, Christopher and His Kind, saying that before, quote, he had behaved as though homosexuality were a private way of life discovered by himself and a few friends, end quote. But now, walking through Hirschfeld's Institute and seeing the vast array of people hanging around and the historical artifacts on display, quote, at last, he was being brought face to face with his tribe, end quote. So everyone's talking about the release of the film adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first Broadway musical, In the Heights, in theaters and on HBO Max today. But I was the indie kid in my high school's musical theater department, so I am way more excited by some other news from today. Netflix saw this highly anticipated movie musical release on a competitor's platform and decided to flex with their own Lin-Manuel Miranda news by dropping the trailer for his directorial debut the film adaptation of Tick Tick Boom. Tick Tick Boom was originally a semi-autobiographical one-man show written and performed by Jonathan Larson in 1990, but after his sudden death the morning of the first preview show of his much more famous musical, Rent, Tick Tick Boom was revamped as a three-person off-Broadway show that's been performed in various venues around the world over the last few decades. And now, it's about to be a Netflix movie musical starring Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, alongside Robin De Jesus, MJ Rodriguez, Joshua Henry, Tariq Trotter, Judith Light, and Vanessa Hudgens. The plot revolves around Garfield's character John feeling pressured to write the next big musical before life passes him by. You can watch the trailer and learn a little bit more about the show and film at the link in the show notes. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.